Chapter Four of From Jest to Earnest by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Four: A Little Pagan. The joke had now taken a phase that De Forest did not relish. While Lottie's byplay was present, and she was telegraphing to him with her brilliant eyes, it was excellent but to sit with his back to the door leading into the hall vis-a-vis -vis to mr dimmerly's puckered face and give close attention to the game was a trying ordeal to one who only consulted his own pleasure and yet he feared he would offend lottie did he not remain at his post she was a despotic little sovereign and he felt that he must use all address until she was safely brought to the matrimonial altar he comforted himself, however, with the thought that she was generous, and when he acted the role of martyr she usually rewarded him with a greater show of kindness, and now got through an hour with indifferent grace. But this purgatorial hour to him was keenly enjoyed by Lottie and Hemstead, though by each for different reasons. "'I fear you will think me a giddy, wayward girl,' said Lottie gently. "'In frankness, I hardly know what to think,' replied Hemstead. Frank is your name, is it not? Yes. It seems appropriate. I hope you won't judge me too harshly. The danger is the other way, I fear, he said, laughing. Well, one of your profession ought to be charitable, but I might naturally expect to be disapproved of by one so good and wise as you are. Why do you think me good and wise? Because you are a minister, if for no other reason. I am also a man. Yes, she said innocently, you are quite grown up. He looked at her quickly, her demure face puzzled him, and he said, I fear you think I am overgrown. And I fear you don't care what I think. Men of your profession are superior to the world. Really, I shall think you are sarcastic if you talk in that way any more. But she looked so serious that he half believed she was in earnest. Are ministers like other men? she asked with a spice of genuine curiosity in her question the venerable pastor of the church which she attended in new york had not seemed to belong to the same race as herself his hair was so white his face so bloodless his life so saintly and his sermons so utterly beyond her that he appeared as dim and unearthly as one of the christian fathers a young theologian on the way to that same ghostly state was an object of piquant interest she had never had a flirtation with a man of this character therefore there was all the zest of novelty had she been less fearless she would have shrunk from it however with something of the superstitious dread that many have of jesting in a church or a graveyard but there was a trace of hardihood in her present course that just took her fancy from lack of familiarity with the class she had a vague impression that ministers differed widely from other men and to bring one down out of the clouds as a fluttering captive at her feet would be a triumph indeed. A little awe mingled with her curiosity as she sought to penetrate the scholastic and saintly atmosphere in which she supposed even an embryo clergyman dwelt. She hardly knew what to say when, in reply to her question, Are ministers like other men? he asked. Why not? That is hardly a fair way to answer. You do not find me a mysterious being. I find you very different from other young men of my acquaintance. What to me is a matter of course is dreadful to you. Then you ministers have such strange theological ways of dividing the world up into saints and sinners, 
and you coolly predict such awful things for the sinners, though I confess the sinners take it quite as coolly. The whole thing seems professional rather than true. The tone of deep sadness in which the young man next spoke caused her to look at him with a little surprise. I do not wonder that this mutual coolness perplexes you. If we believe the Bible, it is the strangest mystery in existence. You may well put that in. Do the generality of people believe the Bible? But as I was saying, from the very nature of your calling, you come to live far away from us. Our old minister knows more about dead people than living. He knows all about the Jews and Greeks who lived eighteen centuries ago, but next to nothing of the young of his own church. My motives and temptations would be worse than Sanskrit to him, harder to understand than the unsolved problems of mathematics. What does such a man know about the life of a young lady in society? That which influences me would seem less than nothing to him. I think you misjudge your pastor. If you became well acquainted with him, you might find a heart overflowing with sympathy. I can no more get acquainted with him than if he dwelt on Mount Olympus. If I were only a doctrine, he might study me up and know something about me. But there is so much flesh and blood about me that I fear I shall always be distasteful to ministers. I assure you, Miss Marsden, I find you more interesting than some doctrines. But you are young. You are on a vacation and can for a time descend to trifles but you will grow like the rest. As it is, you speak very guardedly and intimate that I would be as nothing compared with other doctrines. What is a doctrine, Miss Marsden? Oh, bless me, I don't know exactly. A sort of abstract summing up of either our qualities or God's qualities. I think you are a great deal more interesting than the doctrine of total depravity, said Hemstead, laughing. Perhaps you will come to think I am synonymous with it. No fear. I have seen too much of you for that already. What redeeming features have you seen? He looked at her earnestly for a moment, and she sustained his gaze with an expression of such innocent sweetness that he said a little impulsively, All your features redeem you from that charge. Oh, fie! she exclaimed, a pun and flattery in one breath. I do not mean to flatter, although in some respects you puzzle me. I am very clear and positive as to my feeling of gratitude. While my aunt feels kindly toward me, she is formal. It seemed to me when I came out of the cold of the wintry night, I found within a more chilling coldness. But when you gave me your warm hand and claimed something like kindred, I was grateful for that which does not always accompany kindred, genuine kindness. This feeling was greatly increased when instead of making my dividends and awkwardness a theme of ridicule, you evinced a delicate sympathy, and with graceful tact suggested a better courtesy to others. Do you think, then, that after this glimpse down such a beautiful vista in your nature, I can associate you with total depravity? It was plain to you, Miss Marsden, that I had seen little of society, but you acted as if that were my misfortune, not my fault. I think the impulse that leads one to try to shield or protect another, who for the time may be weak or defenseless, is always noble. If Lottie had shown a little before that she had a heart, she now became painfully aware that she had a conscience, and it gave her some severe twinges during this speech. For a moment she wished she deserved his commendation, but she was not one to do things by halves, and so, recklessly throwing aside her qualms, she said laughingly, "'I don't think a gentleman of your inches at all an object of pity. You are big enough to take care of yourself.' 
and I mean to as far as I can, but we all need help at times. You know a mouse once served a lion. Thank you. Now you have counterbalanced all your fine speeches and compliments. A mouse serving a lion. Well, roar gently, if you please. I'm afraid I appear to you like another animal that once donned a lion's skin, but whose ears, alas, protruded. That is rather a skillful retreat, but I imagine that you think yourself a veritable lion. If you insist on my being a lion, I must refer you to ancient mythology, where one of these overrated beasts is held a crouching captive by Diana. Well, that is quite a transition, first compared to a mouse and then to the moon. I fear that if you have not visited questionable places, you have permitted your mind to dwell on the questionable myths of the past. Oh, that was in the regular order of things, he replied. Before coming to the study of theology, we are put through mythology. That is, under the guidance of reverend professors, we make the acquaintance of a set of imaginary beings who, had they veritably lived, and in our day, would have soon found their way to the penitentiary, at the door of which the lion and Diana would part company, and so I should lose my gentle captive, and become as disconsolate as Auntie would have been had you trodden on the reverse extremity of her pet. Oh, pardon me, but Diana was an exception to the rest. Better or worse? Better, of course. She was a trifle cruel, though, was she not? You have been proving me very tender-hearted. So every woman should be. I doubt whether you know much about us. I cannot imagine a being, not even an angel, more pure, unselfish, and true than my mother, and she is a woman. Miss Lottie, here broke in De Forest, I've played whist to the utmost limit of my conscience. You will not keep me on the rack any longer. Oh, no, cousin Julian, she replied, sotto voce, only on the sofa with our dear cousin Belle. See, she sits there alone. Good-bye. And she swept past with a malicious twinkle in her eyes at his blank expression. But Belle saw and understood the scene. With a cynical smile she went to the piano and commenced a brilliant waltz. Under its spell Addie and Mr. Harcourt came whirling up the hall, and Lottie, who had been under restraint so long, could not resist the temptation of letting De Forest carry her off also. "'It's only with my cousin, you know,' she whispered apologetically to Hemstead. He stood in the doorway for a few moments and watched her graceful figure with a strange and growing interest. Whether saint or sinner, this being so emphatically of flesh and blood was exceedingly fascinating. The transition from the cloister-like seclusion of his seminary life to this suburb of the gay world was almost bewildering, and Lottie Marsden was one to stir the thin blood and withered heart of the coldest anchorite. The faint perfume, which she seemed to exhale like a red rose-bush in June, was a pleasing exchange for the rather musty and scholastic atmosphere in which he so long had dwelt. As she glanced by as lightly as a bird on the wing, she occasionally beamed upon him with one of her dangerous smiles. She then little thought or cared that his honest and unoccupied heart was as ready to thaw and blossom into love as a violet bank facing the south in spring. He soon had a vague consciousness that he was not doing just the prudent thing, and therefore rejoined his aunt and uncle. Soon after he pleaded the weariness of his journey and retired. As he was about to mount the stairs, Lottie whirled by and whispered, "'Don't think me past praying for.' The slang she used in jest came to him, with his tendencies and convictions, like an unconscious appeal and a divine suggestion. 
He was utterly unconventional, and while readily unbending into mirthfulness, he regarded life as an exceedingly serious thing. As the eyes of artist and poet catch glimpses of beauty where to others are only hard lines and plain surfaces, so strong religious temperaments are quick to see providences, intimations, and leadings. Hemstead went to his room with steps that deep thought rendered slower and slower. He forgot his weariness and sat down before the fire to think of one known but a few brief hours. If there are those who can coolly predict awful things of the faithless and godless, Hemstead was not one of them. The young girl who thought him a good subject for jest and ridicule, he regarded with profound pity. Her utter unconsciousness of danger had to him the elements of deepest pathos. While perplexed by contradictions in her manner and words, he concluded that she was what she seemed, a girl of unusual force of mind, frank and kindly and full of noble impulses, but whose religious nature was but slightly developed. He at that time would have been shocked and indignant if he had known the truth. Her natural tendencies had been good. Her positive nature would never waver weakly along the uncertain boundary of good and evil as was the case with Bell Parton. She was one who would be decided and progressive in one direction or the other, but now was clearly on the sinister side of truth and moral loveliness. Surrounding influences had been adverse. She had yielded to them, and they had carried her farther astray than if she had been of a cautious and less forceful temperament. While therefore full of good impulses, she was also passionate and selfish. Much homage had made her imperious, exacting, and had developed no small degree of vanity. She exulted in the power and preeminence that beauty gave, and often exerted the former cruelly, though it is due to her to state that she did not realize the pain she caused. While her own heart slept, she could not understand the aching disquiet of others that she toyed with that it was good sport, high-spiced excitement, and occupation for her restless active mind was all she considered. As she would never be neutral in her moral character, so she was one who would do much of either harm or good. Familiarity with the insincerities of fashionable life had blurred her sense of truthfulness in little things. And in matters of policy she could hide her meaning or express another as well as her veteran mother. And yet there were great possibilities of good in her character. She had a substratum of sound common sense, was wholesomely adverse to meanness, cowardice, and temporizing. Best of all, she was not shallow and weak. She could appreciate noble action, and her mind could kindle at great thoughts if presented clearly and strongly. She could scarcely be blamed severely for being what she was, for she had only responded to the influences that had ever surrounded her and been moulded by them. Her character was rapidly forming, but not as yet fixed. Therefore her best chance of escaping a moral deformity as marked as her external beauty was the coming under an entirely different class of influences. However earthly parents may wrong their children by neglect, or by permitting in themselves characters that react ruinously upon those sacredly instructed to their training, the Divine Father seems to give all a chance sometime in life for the achievement of the grandest of all victories, the conquest of self. Whatever abstract theories dreamers may evolve secluded from the world, those who observe closely, 
who know humanity from infancy to age are compelled to admit however reluctantly that the inner self of every heart is tainted and poisoned by evil the innocence of childhood is too much like the harmlessness of the lion's whelps however loftily and plausibly some may assert the innate goodness and self-rectifying power of humanity as tom paine wrote against the bible without reading it not having been able at the time to procure one in infidel paris those who take the scientific course of getting the facts first shake their heads despondingly it is true that parents discover diversities in their children some are sweeter tempered than others and seem pointedly horizontal if not heavenward in their natures many bid fair to stand high measured by earthly standards but the approving world can know nothing of the evil thoughts that haunt the heart what mother has not been almost appalled as she has seen the face of her still infant child inflamed with rage and the passionate desire for revenge the chubby hand is not always raised to caress but too often to strike as mind and heart develop darker and meaner traits unfold with every natural grace there is a canker-worm in the bud and unless it is taken out there never can be a perfect flower but mr and mrs marsden thought of none of these things the mother received her estimate of life and her duty from current opinion on the avenue she complacently felicitated herself that she kept up with the changing mode quite as well as most women of wealth and fashion if not better she managed so well that she excited the admiration of some and the envy of more and so was content as for mr marsden what with his business his newspaper whist and an occasional evening at the club or some entertainment or public meeting that he could not escape his life was full and running over he never had time to give a thought to the fine theories about his children nor to the rather contradictory facts often reported from the nursery but as year after year he paid the enormous and increasing bills for nurses gouvernantes italian music-masters and fashionable schools he sincerely thought that few men did as much for their children as he of course a lady from whom society expected so much from mrs marsden could not give her time to her children in the impressible period of infancy and early childhood lottie and her brother and an invalid sister older than herself had been left chiefly to the charge of servants but mrs marsden's conscience was at rest for she paid the highest prices for her french and german nurses and governesses and of course had the best she said thus the children lived in a semi-foreign atmosphere and early caught a pretty foreign accent which their mamma delighted to exhibit in the parlor and at the same time they became imbued with foreign morals which they also put on exhibition disagreeably often when through glaring faults the stylish nursery-maid was dismissed the obliging keeper of the intelligence office around the corner had another foreign waif just imported who at a slightly increased sum was ready to undertake the care and he might add the corruption of the children in the most approved style she was at once engaged and to this alien the children were committed almost wholly while mrs marsden would tell her afternoon visitors how fortunate she had been in obtaining a new nurse with even a purer accent the probabilities were that her doubtful accent was the purest thing about her sometimes as the results of this tutelage grew more apparent even mrs marsden had misgivings 
but then her wealthiest and most fashionable neighbors were pursuing the same course with precisely the same results and so she must be right if lottie had been born pellucid as a drop of dew as some claim she would not have remained so long even in the nursery and as she stepped out farther and faster in the widening sphere of her life surrounding influences did not improve her extreme beauty and grace and the consequent admiration and flattery developed an unusual degree of vanity which had strengthened with years though now she had too much sense and refinement to display it publicly while generous and naturally warm-hearted the elements of gentleness and patient self-denial for the sake of others at this time could scarcely have been discovered in her character indeed this beautiful girl nurtured in a christian land a regular attendant upon church was a pagan and belonged to a pagan family not one of her household worshipped god mr and mrs marsden would have been exceedingly shocked and angered if they had been told they were heathens but at the time when paul found among the multitudinous altars of athens one dedicated to the unknown god there were many grecian men and women more highly cultivated than these two aristocrats of to-day but in spite of external devoutness at church it could easily be shown that to this girl's parents the god of the bible was as unknown and unheeded as the mysterious and unnamed deity concerning whose claims the apostles so startled the luxurious athenians like the ancient greeks all had their favorite shrines that to a greater or lesser degree absorbed heart and brain lottie was a votaress of pleasure the first and about the only article of her creed was to make everything and everybody minister to her enjoyment she rarely entered on a day with a more definite purpose than to have a good time and in the attainment of this end we have seen that she was by no means scrupulous she was as cruel a little pagan too as any of her remote druidical ancestors and at her various shrines of vanity pleasure and excitement delighted in offering human sacrifices she had become accustomed to the writhing of her victims and soothed herself with the belief that it did not hurt them so very much after all she considered no farther than that flirtation was one of the recognized amusements of the fashionable what the ton did was law and gospel to her mother and the same to lottie if agreeable if not there was no law and no gospel for her she had no more scruple in making a victim of hemstead than a fiji island potentate would have in ordering a breakfast according to his depraved and barbarous taste and when even society men had succumbed to her wiles and an abject helplessness had permitted her to place her imperious foot upon their necks what chance had a warm-hearted unsophisticated fellow with the most chivalric ideas of womanhood quick-witted lottie on seeing hemstead and hearing his table talk had modified Addie Marchmont's suggestion in her own mind. She saw that, though unsuspicious and trusting in his nature, he was too intelligent to be imposed upon by broad farce. Therefore a religious mask would soon be known as such. Her aunt would also detect the mischievous plot against her nephew and guest, and thwart it. By appearing as a well-meaning, unguided girl, who both needed and wished an adviser, she might more safely keep this modern Samson blindly making sport for her and the others, and at the same time not awaken the troublesome suspicions of her aunt and uncle. In the character of one who was full of good impulses, who erred through ignorance, and who wished to be led and helped to better things, she was nearer the truth and could act her part more successfully. 
but what could frank hemstead coming from a home in which he had breathed the very atmosphere of truth and purity know of all this to him lottie was the most beautiful creature he had ever seen and in his crystal integrity he would have deemed it a foul insult to her to doubt that she was just what she seemed to his straightforward nature believing a woman the opposite of what she seemed was like saying to her madam you are a liar the world would be better if women did more to preserve this chivalric trust past praying for his creed taught him to pray for all the world and already a subtle unrecognized impulse of his heart led him to plead before the divine father for one who seemed in outward grace already fitted for heavenly surroundings when a block of unusually perfect marble falls under the eye of a true sculptor he is conscious of a strong impulse to bring out the exquisite statue that is distinctly visible to his mind hemstead was an enthusiast in the highest form of art and human effort and was developing as the ruling motive of his life a passion for moulding the more enduring material of character into moral symmetry and loveliness humanity in its most forbidding guise interested him for his heart was warm and large and overflowed with a great pity for the victims of evil in this respect he was like his master who had compassion on the multitude his anticipation of his life-work was as non-professional as that of a mother who yearns over the children she cannot help loving lottie appeared strong and lovely by nature it seemed to him that the half-effaced yet still lingering image of god rested upon her beautiful face more distinctly than he had ever seen it elsewhere the thought of that image becoming gradually blurred and obliterated by sin of this seemingly exquisite and budding flower growing into a coarse rank weed was revolting to his mind End of chapter four